training ourselves to learn how to educate clients better and more often is an interesting task in and of itself because you can default to a more typical method of producing documents or producing mm-hmm. images. But when you let the technology lead you, it can often take you further down the road than you imagined you were going to go yourself. But you need to train yourself out of that old way of doing it mm-hmm. and into this new method of literally unlimited resources, which exist right now that could improve rendering quality, imaging, interior, exterior modeling, all these things that are available to you now, they become at least in our practice, more commonplace than they were even a year or two or three ago. You're listening to The Sill Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 81, The Undefinable Spirit, Reimagining Architecture with Robert Arnone. that musical introduction, why that song, for me, it it has to do a lot with the band that I like. In my life, there's two categories of music. There's just Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band, and then Mm -hmm. there's everything else, right? But the great thing about that song, it's got a lot of mystery to it and a lot of history to it. So Bruce tells the story of how he met Clarence Clemens. It's very poetic in terms of how he mentions finding Clarence and what happened to the band ever since he joined it. But what's great about it is the whole concept of the title and, and the song 10th Avenue Freeze Out is that it's a kind of mysterious title because no one really ever knew what it meant. Mm. You know, what, what exactly does it mean, a 10th Avenue yeah. Freeze Out? And so when Bruce was asked once, <laughs> he was asked what it means. He said, so can you explain to us what the title means? And his response was something that I think about all the time. He said, I don't really know, but it's very important. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is so profound on so many levels, right? You've just listened to our guest, Robert Arnone, and he just described his walk-on song for this particular interview. Robert's been with R.H. Carter Architects, a company that he's been involved with for 30-odd years, beginning as an employee to being the current president and owner of the company, brand design and implementation specialists who bring three decades of residential, commercial, and uh, specialized automotive national retail design experience, along with their use of -of state-of-the-art architectural design software and database management systems. Good afternoon, Robert. Good afternoon, Peter and Harry, and thank you for having me. Before we get into the conversation, just a quick bit of information about you. You graduated from Ryerson University in 1986 at the age of 23, completing your four-year stint there with a Bachelor of Architectural Science Technology degree, Working full-time in the fall of 1988 at R.H. Carter, earned a Bachelor of Architecture degree the same year, en route to obtaining your license to practice in 1995. Then you garnered your Master's of Architecture 11 years later at the age of 46 in 2009. In 2011, you became a managing partner, and as of 2017, you've been the president and owner of R.H. Carter Architects, a company you've now been part of for just over 30 years. So, Robert. You're a kid growing up. At what point, what age, what are the circumstances that you decide architecture is going to be your life? 
That's a great question. Thank you, Peter. For me, it was easy and it was early. To preface it all, I think I uh, understand some of the pressure that I was under growing up. My father was adamant and was helping me um, understand that uh, in his mind that I had every reason to become a doctor. So he would, <laughs> my father would introduce me to a lot of his clients and people that he knew that were in the medical business and profession and uh, doctors and surgeons and specialists. And the notion was that I was able to achieve that should I want it. And that's clearly what he had in mind for me. But in the seventh grade, interesting that our elementary schools back then just started the concept of electives. So mm. we we're having these options of classes that we can take one per semester or something. This is back in the seventh grade. And, and they had a drafting class that I thought was interesting elective to take, something outside of the typical maths and Englishes that were offered then. And that drafting class changed everything for me, just the concept that you can put together technical drawings with these instruments that were really unusual, like T-squares and lead pencils. And it was a really fascinating thing for me to discover and realizing quickly that I actually had skills in that area because I've always loved drawing. So recognizing that I was also very good at math from a very young age. So I had a really good math background and science background leading up to high school with great marks in math, science, and always taking art from a very young age right through high school. In fact, I went to a high school that specialized in art at uh, C.W. Jeffries in uh -huh. North York. It was really an art high school. And so my thing growing up was, yeah, this is more likely what I want to do more so than, say, becoming a doctor. And then the concept of being able to parlay an art and science interest and love into some kind of career. Again, something that my dad had me recognize very young, that uh, it was important to have whatever it was that you're going to do manifest itself into something you can earn a living from. Mm -hmm. Robert, did you have a mentor along the way that kind of really encouraged you and urged you forward through this career? Great question. You find them along the way, right, in the most unusual yeah. spots. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, oddly enough, you know, my dad was my mentor. My dad was a big, big, passionate uh, man of the arts, you know. So our Sunday mornings consisted of my dad making sauce in the kitchen because he'd kind of take over the kitchen on Sundays once in a while, not always. And he'd make his sauce on the stove and we'd wake up on Sunday mornings to really loud opera playing from the living room. <laughs> so we woke up to Madame Butterfly and La Traviata <laughs> and various operas like that, that my dad mm. knew word for word, line for line. So mm. big, passionate opera uh, fan yeah. Very much loved the arts, the Renaissance, um, all the arts having to do with Italian history. And so my dad walked me through a lot of those things growing up and those passions sort of, again, you know, you find your mentors in those places where you can, right? And so for me, I saw all those things as reflection of art and architecture and how you can really enjoy and appreciate that side of of life, which you don't typically see in an immigrant family, right? You, mm -hmm. you grow up typically trying to survive. But my dad had this, he was very well read and had this fascination with those kinds of things that um, exposed me to that world. And what's interesting too, Robert, as I think about it now, is that of all the art forms, of all the stage art forms, opera is very crafted. It's very almost architectural in a way, the way it's designed and produced. So there's an interesting connection there from the, the audio to the visual. 100% agree with you. And even in the camber and the, uh, the tonality of the entire music, right? I did the mm -hmm. way it's written and the way it, it forms itself. I'm not suggesting that I'm an opera buff myself. I, I have a great appreciation for it, but you're right. You kind of see what you want to see in things. And I think yeah. Yeah. I traveled to Italy at a very, very young age. And so the first time I was over there, I was only 10 years old. 
and it exposed me to just so much, right? And, and, and to see the world at that age and then have this loose appreciation for those things, they begin to flourish and they end up becoming a part of you. And so I continually, as I grew up, sort of saw those things in this opportunity that you can turn an interest in art and science into something that could become a career and mm-hmm. then you can actually earn a living and enjoy doing which is rare, I think, in career development where you can build a passion early and young and then see it through for all these years. You've had this career for 30 plus years and the company that you're kind of heading now and steering, its specialty, I know you've done other projects, but its specialty is in designing and building car dealerships, which I find fascinating because You don't really think about architecture and car dealerships in the same breath as you would with a modern office building or a house, etc. But you don't think that there's architecture involved, but of course there is. And you guys kind of specialize in that. Why car dealerships? What brought you there? Well, life takes many turns. It's funny how uh, you wouldn't have planned to do anything specifically, really. Your career kind of takes you in different directions. But I agree with you. I think that there's been a lot of change in industry and a lot of change in branding in general, retail branding in general. And I think automotive retail is no exception to that. I think that the automotive industry in general has become extremely competitive, in particular in, in the premium sector. And as companies vie for your business and for that market and try to distinguish themselves from other companies in terms of what they offer, they find that there's two things that really lend towards a customer's appreciation and loyalty. And, and one of them, of course, is is the experience that customer is going to have. And, and the second thing is the image and the facility that you create to house that experience. Mm-hmm. And so interestingly enough, I think automotive retail has become almost a litmus test in a lot of ways for how retail is developed how it's perfected, how you distinguish brand from brand, Mm. and how you provide an experience that is unique to that particular company versus another company and why you should earn that customer's business in that regard. And so before you even get to the automobile and get to the experience of driving, you get to the experience of architecture and design and customer experience. And so all of a sudden, the work that we do becomes not just somewhat important, but very important on creating the first impression, on creating consistency across Canada. So for example, you want to have that customer have the same experience in Vancouver as they do in Calgary, as they do in Saskatoon or Montreal or Halifax. And so those things become very, very important. They become almost as important as the driving experience themselves. So while on the subject of branding, what are some of the challenges in designing for a brand? I don't see them as challenges per se. It's just, it's, it's pure joy for us here at the office. We really relish and we're honored that these companies have placed their trust in us. So it's less of a challenge and more of a commitment that we have to make sure that uh, each brand that we work with has this consistency and this vigorousness with which we quote unquote design and then police the experience. So you view it more as a creative exercise. Oh, yes, absolutely. And and creative on so many levels, because like I say, we travel the country quite a bit to make sure that the experiences are similar from coast to coast. And so we have to bring those solutions to environments that don't always lend themselves readily to those experiences and those design solutions. So we treat it as this sort of the sacred trust almost where we were told that these are the so as an example, we'll often be asked to travel around the world. And we've been to to Sweden and, and to 
Korea and Japan, and we hear from the head office or the corporate executives, what do they want their brand to look like and how do they want to broadcast around the world, not just in Canada, but around the world. Mm -hmm. And then our role would be to come back to Canada and work on how we implement that throughout the country and across the country. But at the essence of it all is we have to respect this brand idea and then convert it into architecture that works in the Canadian marketplace. And so we have to consider the Canadian climate, Canadian codes, regulations, building science and building material options that may or may not be available in Canada that are available in other parts of the world. And so we call it Canadianizing the program. But in doing so, we do not compromise whatsoever on the intent, but we offer them back then this version of their program that meets all of the criteria and still works in the Canadian market. So they need to believe in us that we're going to do this for them. And we feel like we're honored just being part of it. So based on what you just said, then perhaps a better question would be, are there challenges in visiting all these different countries and cultures in aligning all this information and the things that you have to arrive at by going to all these different countries, sometimes for the first time, understanding their culture and so on? Yeah, that's a much better question because there are realities there that we can bring to the conversation. So a really good example is recently we were asked to produce a program based on a an ideal that was created by an architect, uh, an international architect. And one of the ideals, which we saw prototyped in Korea, was that the facade of the building was to have a consistent and homogenous look to it without any seams or any breaks. And it became apparent to us immediately that in the Canadian climate, that's just not how we build buildings. We need to allow for expansion and contraction. We need to allow for mm. the elements to work their ways into a building and for that building not to fail. And so we had to introduce back to Korea this notion that while we were going to honor and respect your materiality and your design ideals, we need to introduce these breaks and materials to allow for our climate to do its thing. And so that's a great example of how we needed to sort of almost educate in a sense, mm -hmm. you know, and, but still bring the consistency and bring the value to that brand ideal. Box, box. So what's your story? That must be the first architect now. Ah, yes, it's Mr. Wiggin of Ironside and Malone. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, this is a 12-story block combining classical neo-Georgian features with all the advantages of modern design. Uh, the tenants arrive in the entrance hall here, are carried along the corridor on a conveyor belt in extreme comfort and past murals depicting Mediterranean scenes towards the <laughs> rotating knives. The last 20 feet of the corridor are heavily soundproof. The blood pours down these chutes and Angus flesh slurps into these large... Excuse me. Hmm? Uh, did you say knives? Uh, rotating knives, yes. Are you uh, proposing to slaughter our tenants? Does that not fit in with your plans? No, no, we, we wanted a simple block of flats. Ah, I see. I hadn't uh, correctly divined your attitude towards your tenants. <laughs> you see, I mainly design slaughterhouses. Yes, Mind you, this is a real beaut. I mean, none of your blood caked on the walls and flesh flying out of the windows, inconveniencing passers by with this one. I mean, my life has been building up to this. Yes, and well done. <laughs> but we did want a block of flats. Well, may I ask you to reconsider? I mean, you wouldn't regret it. Think of the tourist trade. No, it's, it's just that we wanted a block of flats and not an abattoir. <laughs> box, box. If anything, architecture is 
a kind of a balance between art and technology, and both are involved in the creation of it. Would you say that balance between art and technology has changed over the past 30 years, given the sort of the rise of technology? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's, again, another podcast onto itself. I'll just uh, address it this way, that I'm one of those fortunate graduates that came out of school at a time where we were trained to draw by hand. Mm-hmm. But just as I was finishing up my formal education, we were introduced to computers. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of got my feet on both sides of the equation, but came out of school much more comfortable drawing by hand and introduced to this new technology. Well, as as you can imagine, since all those years after graduating in the 80s, the technology has overrun the profession. So mm-hmm. we, we no longer see graduates drawing by hand, per se. We see them immediately immersed into the computer. And AutoCAD and now the latest version, which is Revit, which is their 3D modeling software, which we're early adopters of, again, trying to be on the cusp of technology. We brought in that software to our office uh, 10 years ago when most firms were still uh, debating it. And we embrace the technology. We recognize that our graduates and our interns and our recent hires are much more confident and much more comfortable with the technology. And so we embrace it and we move forward with it. And it's transformed our firm physically. So to give you an idea, when I wrote my exams with the Ontario Association of Architects, there were nine exams to write, which was in and of itself another story. But one of them was a 12-hour exam where we were asked to attend a 12-hour session at the OAA's head office, where in which we had to bring our own drafting table surfaces to the exam. (laughs) So you can imagine there were probably 80 students taking that class and we're all hauling in these boards. (laughs) Mm -hmm. With our, our parallel rules or our T-squares and set-squares. Right. And we had 12 hours to do a set of drawings by hand. And they included architectural, mechanical, and some loose structural drawings as well. And you could just imagine just the change in, in how that's conducted today, where students are asked to enter a room, sign on to a computer, and, and do it all on the computer. So it's physical and otherwise. The changes are significant. But we've embraced technology. It's made our firm better We deliver more for less now to our clients with technology available to us. So our clients all get 3D visualizations of their buildings now very, very early, which they never would have received before. And they're getting that for less than they would have paid before because the technology allows that uh, to happen. Much more immersive. Much, much more immersive. We had a competition with other firms about four years back where our entry into the competition was a virtual reality presentation. So while everyone presented 2D drawings and static sort of more typical kind of presentations, we had everyone place their goggles on their heads and walk them through the building in real time. And we won the competition because of the technology. So that leads to the next question, Robert. The rise of the internet, the rise of the idea of virtual space, our human relationship to space in a way. And I'm just wondering whether the advent, if you like, of the virtual world, the virtual space has affected our way of looking at physical space in terms of architectural design? I think in a big way it has. I think that we're now informing our clients really early. So they're really getting a sense of spatial separations and of of environments, uh, physical and otherwise, that they would never have dreamed of before. We used to get the questions in the past where, okay, so this room is 20 by 30. Can you give me a sense of what that space looks like? Whereas today, you're literally able to immerse them in the space, in the environment with a pretty good physical sense of what that space will be. Sense of scale. Sense of scale, a sense of environment, a sense of we have a project that we're working on right now in downtown Toronto where we're assisting in the modification of an existing building. 
And this is an 80 to $90 million project. And the project is under construction, if you can imagine. And mm. until we produce this virtual walkthrough or fly through of the building where we animated the entire experience from ground floor to fifth floor, the client themselves who are invested so heavily into this project never really had a sense of what the ceiling heights were and what the limitations were of the building that we were inheriting. Mm -hmm. And so until we had this fly-through produced that we did on our own initiative just to really produce a better sense of education to the client or offer some more education to the client, you can just see on the expression on their face that they were just wowed by the, the idea that they had no idea that over in this side of the building or in that corner of the third floor that you were going to be limited by these conditions that exist, these structural conditions that force our ceilings to do these certain things. And so just unbelievable advancements in that regard that we never would have had available to us in the past. By teaching them what they don't know, they appreciate what they do know more. Yeah, and I think it's teaching us too. I mean, it's not just mm -hmm. teaching them, right? It's, it's, it's teaching us and our staff how to better communicate. I mean, we had sessions before Christmas where we talked about offering more to our clients. And we need to teach ourselves that since this technology is available, we need to use it more readily and use it more often and use it in a more robust fashion. And so training ourselves to learn how to educate clients better and more often is an interesting task in and of itself because you can default to a more typical method of producing documents or mm -hmm. producing images. But when you let the technology lead you, it can often take you further down the road than you imagined you were going to go yourself. But you need to train yourself out of that old way of doing it and into this new method of literally unlimited resources, which exists right now that could improve rendering quality, imaging, interior, exterior modeling, all these things that are available to you now, they become, at least in our practice, more commonplace than they were even a year or two or three ago. Mm -hmm. And you've kind of offered me the perfect segue here because you're talking about teaching. Well, when you say the word teaching, I immediately think about mentoring. Mm -hmm. And so at this stage in your career, to many up-and-coming architects, what are some of the main things you try to impress on them? So this is my favorite question so far because it's sort of um, a passion of ours. We believe strongly in the mentorship process. We disagree with the old world way of thinking. There's that great line in, in business where um, the CFO, so the financial head of a company, turns to the CEO mm. of the company and says, what if we offer all this training to our staff and we train them and we bring them along and then they leave? And the CEO, who has a lot more eye on the future of the practice or the firm, says, well, what if we don't train them and they stay? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> you know, and it's a really interesting thought. So sure. I think this is what happens after 30 years. You might begin in a business where there might have been older ways of thinking about how to do things because that's just what practices did back then. Mm -hmm. But the new way is emerging, and that is that there's nothing more valuable than bringing up talent and educating talent and allowing them to flourish from within so that you can grow them from within and bring them all the opportunities that a practice has to offer. So to that point, several years ago, we instituted an internship program here where we worked with Carleton University and Ryerson specifically and um, mm -hmm. Waterloo and other great universities that produce just some tremendous talented uh, people that we would bring them in uh, sometimes on a four-month or an eight-month or a 16-month basis and sometimes even fresh out of school. And we'd offer them opportunities in the practice and they would learn and we'd educate them. And sometimes they would leave and sometimes they would stay. And the bottom line being, though, that we believe that in doing so, we're educating bright young minds on the ways of the practice. But really, they're educating us too, right? It's 
fresh out of school, fresh ideas, mm-hmm. great energy. And so that's one tier of mentorship that we're in, embarked on. The, the second tier is that we've structured our firm in a way where we have mentorship ongoing on a daily basis. So we have senior associates who mentor managers, who mentor staff, and we're trying really hard to flatten the structure so that everyone in the firm has access to everyone else and that there are no bad ideas. So currently, as an example, we have staff here that have been here 25 and 30 years, and we have some that have only been here less than a year. Mm. And in some cases, we're actually redeveloping how we do our standards, both on the design side and on the production side, through the efforts of some of the staff that have only been here a year who looked at what we were doing and offered us some innovative ways of, of thinking outside the box. So fresh mind, not, fresh eyes, sorry. Absolutely. And when the ideas are good, it doesn't matter who they come from mm. or how young or how much of a novice that individual is. If the idea is good, then it's worth implementing. And when I say good, what I mean is if it improves the practice and if it's for the good of the practice. And so we're flattening the structure we're offering ongoing and significant mentorship now as a rule, and we've embraced the internship program. So I think overall, we've transformed how firms can run, and in large part based on the notion of harnessing all this new young energy that exists that, uh, that we can learn a lot from. Tyson, who you know, was at Waterloo for five years, and of course he did the entire mentorship thing for the five-year period that he was there. And one of the things that always impressed me about these type of co-op systems is that thinking back when I was in school and I took the same course as you did, one of the things that impresses me about co-op systems is that it tells you as much about what you might not want to do as what you do want to do. Yeah. So good point. I mean, equally as important for the intern who might have uh, through the Waterloo process, for example, they get exposed to three or four firms before they're done. And so in doing so, very, very true, they may look at those three or four firms and say, well, that's precisely what I don't want to do. Exactly. It's through process of elimination. And you might just get a glimmer in one of those co-op opportunities or something that you really liked in a practice. And it may may do two things. It, It may, one, inform you on which practice you'd like to work for in the future. But also, as you develop your own firm and have an opportunity to build your own practice, you bring to it all these things that you like and make sure that you don't bring along the things you dislike. So yeah, that exposure as a student is as important as it is to the employer who brings all this, the new energy in. The student gets an opportunity to see where uh, they best avoid types of practices that don't meet their their thought or their philosophy. Mm, so here perhaps is a broad question, and maybe you can refine or, or stream it down. Do you have a sense as to where architecture might be going in the future, in what direction it might evolve? From our limited position here in West Toronto, where we work all across Canada through this firm of 40 staff, it's kind of hard for me to project where that would be or where Mm -hmm. that that would go as a broad question. But I can tell you that technology will go a long way in defining where firms are going to go. It already Mm -hmm. has and will continue to. And there's no question about it. You're seeing materiality and building components change right before our eyes and become much more aggressive and progressive as technology allows it to. But more than that, I think the future is in the collaboration. I think it's in the collaboration between a lot of the young minds that are coming out. Uh, it, it has to do with the change in business philosophy more than architectural philosophy. And, and I'm a big proponent of that. I think that we need to move towards environments that mentor, yes, but also embrace, right? Embrace ideology and embrace new forms of collaboration. Those are the things that are going to define 
how practices move forward, how much of this new collaboration and technology you're going to take on, mm-hmm. and how much of it is going to make real change to your business. Is it just um, because you want to experiment in those areas, or are you determined to allow the new ideas and the new energies and new technologies make a difference in your practice? And I think at a very, very high level and a very broad-minded way, I think those are the kind of defining factors moving forward. And it's different than it used to be. It used to be that you had to only reward experience. You had to reward those that had 30 years in the business or 20 years in the business because they knew better. And there are aspects of our practice. This is So one thing we haven't talked about really in, in a broad, broad way is our business is so vast in its scope. The business of architecture begins with clients asking you to go on road trips with them and look for land opportunities and developable opportunities and then speak with people or authorities having jurisdiction in the the municipalities or towns on what you can do with that property. And so there's those early stages of development. And then there's, you get into schematic designing and just broad stroke pencil sketches on what could go on this property. And then you get into budgeting evaluation and working with estimators on costing and what could you physically afford to put on the land. Then before you even get into anything more constructive, you're looking at the soils and you're looking at working with engineers on Mm -hmm. what can go into the ground and and what would be cost effective. And then you get into design development once you learn all that and you start to develop concepts and you work in 3D models and you start to visualize and realize design. And then, and this is months and months and months and months of all these diverse things. And now you're just starting to get into architecture and now as you develop designs, you get into things that we call working drawings or construction documents, mm-hmm. which first are used to go in for building permit applications and site plan application processes through the different towns. And then you get these drawings, you develop them further, and you go for tender. You get pricing, competitive pricing in the industry. You bring contractors in now. And then once that's all established and you land on someone you want to work with, then you go into construction documents and you bring in a team of engineers, civil, structural, mechanical, electrical landscape architects and the architect managed that entire initiative and and now you get into construction documents and now you're into construction phasing so robert before you continue what's the name of the book and uh, (laughs) when are you writing it or when is it coming out (laughs) and so i mean if that hasn't impressed upon you just how diverse the architect's talents need to be Mm -hmm. right i mean it's just now you're into construction so now you're into a commodity where you need to be on that job site once a month overseeing how the construction was done in accordance with the drawings, how much money the contractor should be paid for his efforts at that interval. Mm -hmm. And so you've gone from someone early on who's investigating and assisting in in development opportunities to doing these on-site construction services. And so the reason I raised that as a scope of work is because it used to be in practice that you would reward and only value practitioners who had years and years and years of experience. And that's still very important on the latter end Mm. of the spectrum. So as you get onto construction sites, for example, it's rare to find someone young and fresh out of school doing that task because it's a hornet's nest. It's a quagmire of potential pitfalls in that industry. So there is still opportunities in our industry to reward those with experience on some aspects of what we do. But you can see perhaps during that middle phase when you're into conceptualization and 3D modeling where young, innovative, fresh graduates would be valuable to you there with their experience in software and technologies. Depending on what aspect of the practice you're in, there is much more opportunity to bring in young, fresh minds and still value those that have a tremendous amount of experiences. 
So, Rob, are you saying it takes a village to build a building? <laughs> it takes a village to mentor an individual <laughs> towards the building of a building, yes. <laughs> okay, so let me ask this question. This brings this idea up. We've talked about mentors here, how you mentor young architects, how your father was a mentor to you. Can you talk about, if it even means anything, how your cultural background, your Italian background in your family has kind of informed you as a communicator, as someone who relates well to other people? Because clearly you relate well. I can hear that in your voice, how quickly you relate to people. Can you talk a bit about how that happens? I would suggest to you that it has absolutely nothing to do with culture. I think that it really comes down to the individual. And I can use as an example mm-hmm. of my statement uh, the following. You know, we're a firm of 40 people. Yep. And we speak 18 different languages. Mm-hmm. And so from my experience in this business, the best candidates in the industry come from all over the world. And our goal as a firm is to seek out the best. And the cultural spectrum here is diverse and it's varied and we like it that way. Mm -hmm. And we think that uh, as a microcosm of the city of Toronto and Canada in general, I think we're extremely fortunate to be able to draw from talent from all around the world. And so you can look at my culture or his culture or her culture and, and wonder if it helps to define the individual. But I don't think it does. I think that the fact that we speak 18 different languages tells me that we have at least 18 different cultures Sorry, Robert, I was thinking more along the lines of, you talked about that uh, project manager in the hornet's nest. Mm -hmm. And at the very least, that project manager has to be a maestro at relating to different types of people in terms of their needs and demands and time schedules and monetary restrictions. Yeah. You need to be adept at that, don't you, to handle that? Yeah, I, I will take something else from that question, which I think is very profound. And that is that in a lot of ways, the business that we're in is a lot like a lot of other businesses Mm -hmm. in the sense that you do have to have certain personality traits. You're absolutely right. It is the business of service in a lot of ways, right? We're in a service industry really, right? Mm -hmm. And so to be a proper practitioner, you need to have certain personality traits. Absolutely correct. You need to know how to deal with people properly and professionally, diffuse situations, Mm -hmm. right? Problem solve. So people have this impression of architecture and architects, and they always have sort of this preordained sort of notion of what an architect is, and it's often considered, you know, somewhat glamorous or somewhat interesting. And I can't tell you how many people you meet in your life and say, oh, I've always wanted to be an architect, or I've always, mm-hmm. because they have this sort of image of it. Glorification. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just one of those professions. I mean, uh, I think there's even Seinfeld episodes of this where George Costanza <laughs> talks about you know, how he wishes he was an architect. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? But yeah. I, think, I think at the end of the day, and, I, and I'm really going to simplify this here, it does really come down to a service-oriented business. You really need to know how to take care of your clients and listen, very important. You know, listening is a very important aspect of our business. And then coming up with a collaborative approach or some kind of approach to solving the problem. Mm-hmm. And if you boil it down even further and you distill it, it really becomes almost a a matter of how you deal with people. And so it reminds me of um, a company in Toronto that sells suits. They're on the Danforth and they've become sort of locally famous because of their advertising on the radio. And years and years and years ago, I thought I might go visit them and buy a suit. And so I visited with them and the, uh, the gentleman who owns the company He's quite elderly and he's been at this business for 50 years. And he was the one who greeted me at the door, just happened to be there that day. And he walked me upstairs. He asked me what I did when I first walked in. I told him I was an architect. And he, he walked me upstairs and he sat down with me. And um, the first thing he did was he offered me an espresso. 
And so we sat at the coffee counter, which he had built upstairs, surrounded by these beautiful suits, and offered me a coffee, and we chatted. And the first 15, 20 minutes of my suit-buying experience had nothing to do with buying a suit. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I was young enough then and impressionable enough then that it made an impact on me. And I realized that whether you're selling a suit or whether you're selling widgets or whether you're selling a service – it's how you deal with people that's going to make an impression. They have to like you before they act with you or buy from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think instinctively, people in consulting industries need to do a better job at that, right? They need to sort of understand that that's really what it comes down to. It's relationships that you build with people. I don't think people think of our business that way, but I do. You're very well-traveled, obviously, been around the world in different countries and seen the architecture around the world. Is there one particular building or structure, architectural accomplishment that you think is the epitome of brilliance in the field? I'm going to date myself with this one, but I'm, I'm happy to do so. So we had a competition here just before the holidays at the end of last year where we um, came up with this notion where I gave the staff two hours to come up with this little model of a warming hut that had to be of a certain scale. And to inspire them, I had to give them a theme. And uh, the theme for the uh, the competition this year, I used an example of a building that I was very fond of. So to answer your question in a roundabout way, I was in Europe uh, backpacking when I was very young. So I was um, in my second year of university, would have been 1984. So I was 20 years old and I was backpacking through Europe and um, landed in Paris during uh, one of my stops and uh, did a lot of walking and traveled up the hill to where the Sacred Heart is uh, up in um, Montmartre. That's right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And looked down and took a photograph of the sites. And and what was obvious to me from that vantage point was just how incredible Paris Mm -hmm. was and how beautiful. But there was this thing in the center of my frame as I looked down, which clearly didn't fit in, and except for its scale, which, which fit in, it's, the architecture was so unique and so specific. And I knew what it was, and I was actually on a journey to go and find it while I was mm-hmm. in Paris. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the Pompidou Center. I thought so. Mm-hmm. That, that's right. what popped into my mind, too. Yeah. So you know it well, then. So yes, oh, yeah. it was one of those buildings in the 80s that was done, which was so in your face. Yep. And so advanced for its time and so dynamic and mm. so not what Paris should, mm-hmm. well, not what they thought they should have had. Yes. Right. But in hindsight, I believe that it, it's so Parisian and, and so appropriate for their culture and for the time that it was that we look back on it now and just think about how wonderful it was. But mm-hmm. I think it was one of those buildings that caught my attention at a very early age because it made me feel like, really, you know, you can kind of do anything. Mm-hmm. In this fabric of this history of the city where you would imagine things to all kind of fall in line, here is this building that does absolutely the opposite of that. Well, just a and, corollary question to that. I mean, I've been to Paris uh, once and I'm going back again this year. In terms of the styles and the history of it, I fall in love with Art Nouveau. I think it's just incredible. And mm-hmm. the, some of the Art Nouveau facades in Paris are just stunning to look at. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite sort of period, Bauhaus or whatever, that you look up to? 
Well, we came out of school at, a, at an unfortunate time. Well, it was kind of unfortunate but fortunate at the same time. So it was a, a, an awful period in architecture of, of postmodernism where the building expressions were, mm. were poor. Mm-hmm. But just emerging during that period was Frank Erie. Uh-huh, right. And um, I have a great story about Frank Erie. So he was literally, he had just done his aviation museum in Los Angeles. So he wasn't yet famous. And he was experimenting with things like chain link fence and fish scales. So he was still in very creative early stages of development of his style. And uh, he came to give a lecture in Toronto down at the Harbor Front in the, I want to say, 86, 87, maybe 86, 85. And I had bought one of his books, his first book that he ever put out with his collection to date. And again, he wasn't nearly as famous as he was going to become. And after the lecture, I walked down the steps and I approached them and I had my book in his hand. And I said, Mr. Gary, it's a pleasure to meet you. Can you sign this book for me? And he looked at me and he gave me this stance. He almost squatted and he said, what am I, a celebrity? (laughs) 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 And it was just one of the greatest encounters ever. And And he signed my book and he was literally nothing then. Well, so Robert, I need to tell you this. I've been listening now for better part of 30, 40 minutes, questions back and forth. I just like to say that one of the things that I've really gotten out of this whole discussion is a very, very positive, passionate, and caring attitude, which to me, over and above the subject matter, it's been a real lift. One of the reasons why we do these podcasts is to meet people, people who inspire and who really enjoy what they do. And if nothing else, you've certainly given me that feeling. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for saying that. So, you know, we we talked about mentorship earlier and the candidates that we get. And, you know, we have to say goodbye to them often because they're still in school. So we'll have students who come during their co-op and they'll come for four or eight months and then they'll leave. Mm -hmm. We gather the staff when they leave and we usually throw a little party for them and we say goodbye to them. And I have a theme that runs through my goodbye speech. And that is you all come out of school with a similar ability. You all can do things. You can all draw. You can all work your way through a computer quite well and, and bring innovations and technologies and whatnot. But what I'm looking for are the intangibles, right? I'm mm-hmm. looking for the individuals who bring something to a firm that are beyond the technical aspects. Beyond mechanics. Correct. So I think in part what you're referring to is sort of what does that individual bring to the practice? We've had co-op students after eight months leave. And in one instance, one left me a manual on how to grow, build, and perfect your internship process. Like, imagine someone taking the time. Mm-hmm. So once in a while, you see these candidates that come along that just make a difference. And I think that's in part, again, what you're referring to is this notion of, you know, what does the individual bring to the conversation yeah. or to the design process that is beyond the mechanics, as you said, but is more because of their individual either persona or belief system mm. or energy or whatever you call it. And mm-hmm. I think that that's consistently true for a lot of businesses, right? Yes, just, yes. Right? And not to sound cliche, but what I'm talking about is turning that little flicker into a beam of light. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. I'm talking about that feeling that an individual gets when they enter or exit a space that goes, wow, I feel yeah. like doing something today. And so when the students leave, do you have a walk-off song? <laughs> <laughs> No, but as of this moment, I'm going to include that in my policy, in my process. And so if you could have a walk-off song for this podcast, Robert, what would it be? Oh, okay. Now, see, now I got to go through my library. So to show you how current I am, even though I'm I'm up there in age, I'm going to give you a completely different spin on music. And my walk-off song, hmm, well, it's going to be by The National, who is a more current band. Oh, okay. Please uh, enlighten me. I, I haven't got a clue who The National is. We're old fogies here. 
Right. So, and I get a lot of flack for this from my kids because they listen to them as well. Just to show you, I can kind of counter the Bruce Springsteen thing. Sure. I'm going to go with uh, the National. I'm going to go with Blood Buzz, Ohio. So let me just make sure I got that right. <laughs> Blood Buzz. <laughs> And in, in doing so, I'm going to educate you guys as well. Sure. So the song yeah. is called, so my walk-off song, so just to be clear, mm-hmm. yes. so you put me on the spot here, but my walk-off song, if I had to pick one, would be Blood Buzz, Ohio by The National. And I would challenge you both to listen to that song. Definitely. And not, and not feel like you haven't got a significant injection of energy after listening to it. Okay, cool. we'll do it. We'll get back to you on that. Now, one thing I did want to say, if you're interested in more about Robert himself and his firm, it's rhcarter.com. A very interesting website, has a lot of additional information based on a lot of the things we've discussed here today. He welcomes everyone to visit the site, rhcarter.com. Yeah, and so Robert, I want to thank you again uh, for coming on the podcast. One final question. You've known Mm -hmm. Peter Noche for a long time, apparently. What's the craziest thing you've ever experienced him do? (laughs) Well, this podcast, first of all, I think <laughs> we should have started the podcast by having a, a declaration of conflict of interest, right? Because we're related. We're first cousins. <laughs> so listen, Robert, before I say goodbye, I just want to tell you, whatever the conflict is, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. And you seem to be very happy doing what you're doing. And really, that's all that matters. Here. Exactly. Well said. Well said. Of course, we always invite listeners to call in, give us messages, comments. We have voice messaging capability right on our website at thesillpodcast.com. If you want to leave a message for us or for Robert, just click on the button and leave it, and we'll make sure that he gets it. Other than that, Rob, I call you Rob. There is a slip. Now they know your family. <laughs> That's right. That's- I just wish you all the best continued success. Thanks Thank again. you guys so much. And listen, this is this is wonderful. I've, I've enjoyed listening to some of your podcasts, and I'm thrilled for you guys. I hope it catches on to the extent that um, you can continue what you're doing and growing it. And I'm very fond of of these kinds of initiatives. And I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. Take care. Take care, guys. All the best. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. (laughs) 